The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Thanks for so much for being here, everyone. Really excited to share this time with you. Super excited to hear from Grant today, his testimony, celebrate his baptism with you. Uh, it's got to be one of my favorite things as a pastor. But before we do that, I want to think with you just a little bit about the meaning of baptism and some of its implications for our lives. And we'll do that from Luke 17. But let's pray and ask God for help as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that um, you are the kind of God, the only kind, who is a living God, a real God, a true God, and a communicating God. You speak. You make known to us who you are. Uh, spoken through your word. We have your thoughts on these pages. Uh, most excellently, you've spoken to us through your son, the Lord Jesus. And you speak to us by your spirit. We pray that you would speak to us again today and speak in a way that, please, that's better than anything that I could say. Uh, speak in your power to each one of us, our hearts, our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. I find a question It's. I, Maybe it sounds boring at first, but it's pretty important that I have to answer fairly often is what is baptism? What is baptism? I can't help but say the same illustration I've said 10,000 times because once I had a lady call and ask me if I would baptize her dog. So I, I won't go into that in any more detail other than to tell you I didn't do it, okay? But it just reminds you of how much... Uh, the question is maybe still relevant. What are these Christian people doing? What is baptism? So uh, if you've never been baptized, I hope that after today you'll be thinking, I want that. And if you have been baptized, I want you thinking, this is awesome. Okay? So let's just remember some basics. Did you remember, did you know that when someone puts his faith in Jesus, right, he repents, so that just means to turn. You were living for this, you were trusting in that for your identity, and you realize, I'm off. I'm, I'm, I'm out of joint with how God made the world. I'm, I'm rebelling against God, and you turn to Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, this miracle happens where God actually unites you to his son. He unites you to his son. If you get the idea of a Christian being somebody sitting in the corner who believes a list of truth, and God's like, well, okay. And that's it. That's not even it at all. He actually connects you to the person of Jesus Christ. So think of the imagery. It'll probably ring out to you. What's the church called in the New Testament? The body of Christ. Like a head to a body, you're connected to Christ. Or Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Like branches to a tree, you're connected to Jesus. Or Paul would say in Ephesians 5, he's the husband of the bride. We're his bride and he's the husband, like a husband to a wife. We're connected to Jesus. So, so many times throughout the New Testament when Paul's talking to Christians, he says, you're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You're in Christ, you're connected to him. Colossians 3, since you've been raised with Christ, now you're seated with Christ. Even right now, you're seated here. You're seated with Christ because you're connected to Jesus. A couple of really important aspects to this. Paul is saying in Romans 6, you've been connected or united to Jesus' death. You've died with Christ. Well, how can that be? You're sitting here alive. I'm not dead. Well, think about it. As you're united to Christ, his death on the cross, 
you're included in that, involved in that. And what that means is your old life of sin, rebellion, denial of God, it's dead. It's over. And all the judgment and condemnation we deserve for that, it's wiped away. Jesus paid for it on the cross. It was this wonderful erasure of the past. And then the second thing, Paul would say, you've risen with Christ. So now this old life is dead. You have a new life with Jesus. So you have his Holy Spirit holding you, keeping you. you. You're united to him. You have his word, his truth. You're children of God, adopted by the Father. You're new. There's this new start. And of course, ultimately, Sharing in his resurrection means when he comes back, we'll physically rise from the dead. Won't that be awesome? You ready for that? Anybody down for that? New body, new heaven, new earth. Let's roll. And it's all by grace, isn't it? How many of you united yourselves to Jesus? How would that even be possible? Uh, How could we sinful, rebellious people somehow make Make it to where we're connected to him and he's ours and we're his and we're joined. How could we possibly reach that high and and do that work? Never. We never could. We don't deserve it. We don't have the power for it. We never could, which means it's all by what? Grace. Grace. Do you remember? I know you know what grace is, but do you know? I don't even know. Do I know? Undeserved, lavish love. Totally undeserved. You're like, yeah, but I don't, I don't deserve it. I know. That's part of the definition. Undeserved, lavish love. It's by grace. We've rebelled against him. We deserve his wrath. Instead, he has loved us, changed us, and united us to his very son. If you have any, <laughs> any part of a high view of Jesus, how does it make you feel to think to remember to know that you, you individually, can be united to him and have him in all that he has done. It's by grace. So what is baptism? The baptism we're going to enjoy today is an outward sign and picture of that inward reality. It's an outward sign and picture of an inward reality. Reality. I like to compare baptism to a wedding ring. See mine? I dislocated my finger once, so mine is made of rubber. Okay. Am I still married when I take this off? Yeah. Is, is this my marriage? No. But does it mean something when I put it on and when I hold it up? What's it say? Identifies me, right? I'm married. I belong to somebody. And it kind of seals me in. It holds me. It, it, it recognizes me. So we see baptism as a sign and seal. Listen, when I baptize Grant today, I am not uniting him to Christ with my magic Jesus water. <laughs> I wasn't here late last night, you know, stirring in all the right ingredients, importing water from the Jordan River, you know. Uh, ridiculous, okay? The real baptism has already happened in my brother. God has united him to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. But this is an outward sign. It's obedience to Christ. He said, hey, make disciples, get baptized. And so what it does is it makes it public. He gives this profession, which is why he's going to give his testimony, saying, this is what's happened to me. This is what I believe. And then we as God's people, we witness it. And what do we do as we hear it? We say, yes. And then we all celebrate in this sign that Jesus gave us. It's a marker. Hey, Grant and we 
who are baptized, we belong to Jesus. And there's a sealing effect, right? Because it, help, it gives you this assurance. You remember what it means for you, and you encourage and, and include for what it means for him. A sign and seal of an inward reality. You know, many times in the New Testament, Christians are called to remember their baptism. Why? It has implications. It has implications for your life. It has, if, if you know you're united to Christ, it has implications for how you relate with others, doesn't it? It has implications for how you understand yourself. And it has implications for how you relate with the Lord who has brought you to himself. It has implications. So there are the things we want to remember and treasure. Now you might say, what on earth does that have to do with what we read in the scripture today? <laughs> okay. Something about if you cause somebody to sin, tie a stone to your neck and jump in the river. And then there was increase your faith and you can throw trees into the ocean. <laughs> and then there was, hey, don't get too high and mighty. Remember, you're just an unworthy slave. Did anybody go, hmm? Okay. Jesus is talking about the culture of the baptized. The culture of the baptized. We've been going through Luke 17, or Luke for quite some time, right? And 15, 16, 17, you remember Jesus is kind of doing this back and forth, talking to Pharisees, talking to disciples. Talking to Pharisees, talking to disciples. And so the Pharisees get so many things wrong, and he's challenging them and drawing them towards him if they'll have him. But then he'll correct with his disciples and say, hey, this is the way we're going to be. We're going to be different than, than they are. So let's just Let's back up just a moment, get in the context of this passage. Who were the Pharisees? A lot we could say about that, but just a, a simple summary would be they're religious leaders of the time with massive influence on their communities. They wanted to save the nation through obedience to tradition and religious purity but as we've seen, they have this one underlying motivator which just poisons pretty much everything they do. If you put their major flaw into one word, or maybe two, how would you say it? You might say self-righteousness. Dig a little deeper. What is that from? It's pride. They were prideful. Now, if, you, if you have read through the Gospels, if you just remember what we've seen in Luke, you can kind of see, oh, how their, how their pride is expressed. Remember, Jesus will confront them for saying, you know, you like certain parts of God's law. You totally ignore other parts of God's law. And then you make your own rules and pretend like they are God's law. Now, what does it take to look up at God in heaven who has given you his law and say, it's kind of like a buffet at Sizzler, right? I'll take a little here. Oh, but I don't like that. And then, hey, I can even bring my own. What, what kind of an attitude does it take to look it up at God and his law and say, I can improve on this? Or, I don't need that part. I'll pick which part I like. Oh, and I'll actually invent some that I think is a little better. What does it take to look at God's law and say, I'm going to change it? Pride. <laughs> That's a great level of Pride. Now, be careful, because if you analyze your own life, you might find you've done it yourself a couple times. 
I know I have. They're prideful towards God. Not only are they prideful towards God, how did they treat the sinners? Remember, the really bad people, the outsiders. How do they treat Gentiles, Samaritans, tax collectors, the, the handicapped? How do they treat them? They demean those who aren't on their inner circle. They, they're less valuable. They, they can't be loved by God. They can't know God's forgiveness. They're outsiders. We want to separate from them. Now, what does it take to say, hey, I'm better and you're worse based on my keeping of my invented law? What is that called? It's pride towards others. They had pride towards God, pride towards others. And then not only that, a couple weeks ago we saw how they just presumed based on their life circumstance, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm a religious Jew, my life is going pretty well. They presume that based on what they've done and what they've accomplished, God must bless them. Of course, they presume because they've are they convicted? Do, do they seem convicted that they're saved by grace? What do they seem convicted about? They're saved by their achievement. And what is that, folks? Pride. It's pride. They are not only prideful towards God, towards others, prideful in themselves, they're influencing these communities towards pride. If you look, remember other parts of Jesus' teaching, he's like, when you pray, don't go stand and pray on the corner real loud so everybody sees you praying. Well, why do you think he had to bring that up? The Pharisees. Hey, when you give, don't be like, yo, look what I'm giving, so everybody can see it. Why would he have to bring that up? Because this Pharisaic tradition was influencing everyone towards Pride. So now as you see Luke 17, verse 1, who's Jesus talking to? And he said to his disciples. So he's been going back and forth, Pharisees, disciples, Pharisees, disciples, confronted Pharisees about pride. And what do you think now he wants from his disciples? Pride or humility? Humility. And so in these verses from 1 to 10, we're going to see Jesus wanting from his people humility in how they treat one another, humility in how they come before him, and humility within their own understanding of themselves. Humility with others, humility before him, humility in how they understand themselves. So let's begin. We'll look at this culture of the baptized. Hey, should your baptism make you humble? Did you, uh, did you earn this status before God, this favor of God, or was it a gift of grace? And that's humbling. So let's see it. Humility with one another. Verses 1 to 3, I guess 1 to 4. Why does, uh, who's Jesus talking about when he says, if you cause one of these little ones to sin? Is Jesus especially worried about the sins of shorter people? Taller people are like, yeah, it's true, I sin less. Uh, no, is it just for younger people, babies? No. Um, if you look at the context, uh, Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourself if your brother, huh, well, what does that mean, your brother? Is it only people you're related to? No, this is children of God, right? These are people, these are disciples, these are believers if you look at the, pretty much the same teaching in Matthew, there it's pretty explicit. Little ones equals Christians, disciples, believers. Okay, if that's who little ones are, then why does he call believers little ones? 
Why does he do that? What does it mean? Isn't it a term of preciousness? Isn't it a term of tenderness? Isn't it a term of these people are really valuable? And isn't it, isn't it a term of uh, fragility? They're valuable, but be careful with them. Because how you influence them makes a big difference. These are the little ones. Just apply this, right? Apply this. Who are these? This is our version, right? Fountain of life. And who are these people in this text? Who are you? Who are we? We're the little ones, okay? It's reminded we're not saved because we're big and strong and high and mighty and wise and smart. We're saved by grace, and we're remembering that we're, uh, we're precious, but we're vulnerable. And so, within this mindset of being with precious, vulnerable people, how should we treat one another? With humble care. Humble care. Look what Jesus says in verse 1. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So um, Jesus is pretty clear. Temptations, is that going to be surprising to have temptations in the world? Or are they just everywhere all the time? They're everywhere all the time. What is a temptation? What is a temptation? It's an allure to draw you away from trust in and love for God. And to put your hope in something else which will change your behavior. It's an allure to draw you into rebellion against the God who has loved you. The, the, who does he have in mind as he's saying temptations are sure to come? The Pharisees. They've been influencing people. Remember we've seen they love money. They live for it. They demean marriage. They demean the poor. They use religious performance as a public show. And so what's their influence doing all the time? Tempting people away. And Jesus, I don't know, what do you think of this line? It'd be better to, to, a millstone is this large stone that they would use to grind grain, so I assume it's hard to swim if you're wearing one of those. Right? Um, strong words. What do you do with this? It'd be better for you to tie a cinder block, of 10 of them, to your neck and jump in the river. Let's just go with this, okay? How does Jesus like it when someone influences his little ones away from him? How does he like it? Is this like, oh, it's chill, don't sweat it kind of language? Or is this his... <laughs> You don't want to be doing this. That's that kind of language. Which means his first point here is there's three things with humble care for one another. Make sure you never influence God's people away from him. Make sure you never, this is humble care. Make sure you never influence God's little ones away from him. You just don't want to do that. And this even gives us a humble perspective because Jesus will say, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? In this context, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? It's that you buy temptations into practicing sin. 
That's the worst thing that can happen to you, is that you, the temptation would allure you and you'd go. You'd leave God as your hope, as your treasure, as your identity. You'd leave him and you'd go somewhere else. It's the worst thing that can happen to you, which means what's the worst thing you can do to someone? Influence them that way. It's the worst thing you could do. So you see in verse 3 what Jesus says, right? Pay attention to yourselves. And so we want to ask one another, is our good advice good advice? We want to ask ourselves, is our example a good example? Is our influence on one another, love for God, trust in his promise, is it encouraging? Boy, think of the things we say casually. Have you ever influenced somebody away from the Lord in this little way, that little way? I have. But we want humble care for one another. Humble care. And it's the culture of our baptism, isn't it? It's the culture because my baptism tells me I'm one of God's little ones. And your baptism tells you you're one of God's little ones, which means your baptism tells you about me. I'm one of God's little ones, and we want to have humble care for one another. We never want to influence one another away from the Lord. In fact, it The second thing it means is humble care means you make sure you influence God's people towards the Lord. Look at verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, y'all tell me so you'll believe it. What are you supposed to do? Rebuke him. Rebuke him. What's it mean to rebuke? It's to admonish. It's to correct. I want to be a little careful here. Do we need like the rebuking police? You know, and you get like a... You get little stickers or something, rebuke, you know. I saw that, rebuke, you know. Ugh, pretty soon the rebuker would be the only person that comes to the church. We don't want that kind of an attitude, but that would be prideful rebuke, wouldn't it? What kind of a rebuke are we looking for contextually? Humble rebuke. Look what Paul says, the Lord's apostle, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Just pause there. You hear, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You're going to think something like boldness, change the world, fireworks. Actually, this is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse 2. With all what? Humility and gentleness with Patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. So it's this context of care and gentleness and humility with awareness that I would never want to draw you away from the Lord, and I always want to influence you towards the Lord. So if there's this practiced sin that I'm like, "Eh," what are we supposed to do with that with one another? You should tell me about it. Humbly, gently, please, please. I should tell you about it. Does that sound crazy? Um, You know, the world's greatest athletes pay huge money to hire the best coaches, don't they? Continually working on their form, their strength, their diet. So how do you think that goes? Coach comes up. You know, uh, your form didn't look too good, but what I really want to know is that it felt good. Did it feel good to you, your bad form? Yeah, it felt really good. Go with that. 
follow your feelings. Or how about this one? I, I know it didn't, I, I saw you had no accuracy in what you were doing, but did it make you happy? Yeah, go with that. Accuracy doesn't matter. Or how about this one? Eat whatever you want. If it tastes good to you, it must be good for you because you should follow your feelings. Right? Is that what the greatest coaches say to the greatest players? What are these players hiring these coaches to do? What do they get paid to do? To critique and rebuke. That's what they are hired to do. Wisely rebuke me. Take me back to the basics. Show me what to eat. Help me get stronger. Because why? What do these athletes want? They want to be the best. And they know if they only pay people to say, you're so wonderful, do how it feels, they will get worse. Why are we so different as Christians? Because we are different. We're so scared, scared to listen to rebuke or to offer it because it feels like a personal rejection, doesn't it? It feels like a condemnation. You're terrible, no one loves you. Remember the, cult, the, the culture of your baptism. You are loved. You're in, you're united to Jesus. And because of that, we have a new life now. And what, what should you want for your life? More or less sin. Less. Can you do that your best all by yourself? Not a chance. Not a chance. We can learn from the world's best athletes on wanting critique so that they can be their best. I love Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is what? Okay, I didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> Humble care means you never want to influence one of the Lord's little ones away from him. You always want to influence one of the little ones, Lord's little ones, towards him. And then number three, what a great corrective. Humble care means you always forgive. Look at verse three. Pay attention to your brother, yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, what? Forgive him. Verse four. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must what? Forgive him. You must forgive him. This is amazing. What a balance. What's it mean to repent? Well, here it's, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I want to change. And when somebody turns towards the Lord and towards truth, the response every time from his people is what? Forgive, which means I'm letting it go. It's over. Jesus paid for it on the cross. It's gone. Your past is gone. It's dead. You died with Christ. You're new. We forgive you. Oh, but Jesus, what if they keep it up? And do you see how it got personal in the second part? If your brother sins, that was just in general in verse 3. And look at verse 4. If he sins against you. Because it's easy for me to forgive your sin. It's harder for me to forgive your sin, right? Is it easier for you to forgive people's general sin? And is it harder to forgive their sins against you? Of course. So Jesus is so wise. If he sins against you seven times in the day, and you say, man, 
<laughs> and he repents. What do you do every time? You forgive. Now, on the eighth time, boot him out, right? No. Why seven? For Jewish culture, seven is a number of completeness. And so that number means you keep forgiving. Every time they repent, you keep forgiving. This is so tender because it lets us know something about ourselves, the little ones. How many of you are able to kick a sin the first time you try it? How many of you are dealing with the same sins you've been dealing with for 20, 30 years? Okay? We move slow sometimes. Do we move? We move. We're God's people. We have a new life. We have the Holy Spirit. We're changing. But are we going to struggle are we going to offend one another six, seven times, even a day? And if I'm practicing sin, what should you do? Humbly, gently, kindly. Help me with it, right? Help me with it. But if I do it again to you, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, then what do you do? Forgive. A humble care for one another keeps forgiving. And it's the culture of our baptism, right? Colossians 3.13. Devastating, wonderful words. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What kind of forgiveness do you want from the Lord? Seven times a day, the eighth time you're done? Okay. If he treated us like that, no one's going to heaven. I am banking everything on Jesus' universal forgiveness for my sins. <laughs> Past, present, future. I am banking everything that he's just going, I forgive it. I forgive it every time. I need that. Do you need that? That is my hope. He just keeps forgiving. What you need, culture of your baptism says, you offer. You offer it. We should take uh, 20 minutes right now and pray this out. Because there's unforgiveness lurking. Right? Don't you have some? Certain people, certain moments. Pray it out, folks. Pray it out. Talk it out. Remember your forgiveness and forgive. That's the first part of the culture of our baptism, a humble care for one another. Okay, you see verse 5 now. I think I mean, once you unpack that first point, the second point becomes more clear. Because what do the apostles say to Jesus after his directive to never influence someone towards sin, always influence someone towards the Lord, and forgive every single time? What do they say to him in verse 5? Increase our faith. And what does that mean? It means this is too hard for anybody to do. <laughs> Let me paraphrase it. This is impossible. We can't do this without you. Isn't that true? Isn't Jesus asking you for a supernatural life? To love people like this? To be humble like this? To forgive like this? Can you do this in your own strength? Do you even want to do this in your own strength? I mean, on your own, you cannot do what he's called you to do. And so we see this next aspect of, hu of humility that the disciples show us. A humble, dependent faith. I can't do this. It's too much for me. And that is the culture of our baptism. Can you unite yourself to Christ? No, but has God done it for you? And do you have a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit? Can you somehow do the supernatural that you couldn't do before? And the answer is yes. 
Yes. Lord, increase our faith. How would you define faith in this moment? And you listen to the radio, you got songs about faith. We don't know what it is. What was that Christmas movie about the train? Polar Express. You just got to believe. And you're, oh. How do I do that? Believe in what? What, what is faith? Here's, a, here's my definition for the context. See what you think. Look at this. Faith. Your mind and heart clinging to the promises of God in the word of God as if they are true in life and real for you because of Jesus. Your mind. What are you doing with your mind? I, I don't want you to just believe in some smoky nothing out there. Just believe. No, no, no. I don't want you to just believe in yourself. Find it in yourself. No, no, no. Your mind and your heart clinging to what? The promises of God. And where do you find those? His word. And be- cling to them as if they are true in life. All the time real. And not just that. Real for you. Are his promises real for you individually? Yes. Why? Because of Jesus. And this is so amazing because sometimes we get the idea that faith is something we conjure up in our own strength. But think about this prayer. Who do the disciples look to to give them faith? Jesus. So they're actually saying, Lord, I don't even believe in you like I should and I feel like I can't. Help me. That is a great prayer. Depend on the Lord for more faith. If you're hearing this and going, this is too much, I can't ever do it. I know, me too. Now what do we do? We don't just have a humble interaction with one another. We have a humble posture before God and we say, I need your help to be who you're making me to be. I need your help to see it, to taste it, to trust it. Help me believe. And he will. He will. I love the illustration he gives. What can you do if you have a humble, dependent faith in the Lord? Uh, Even if you have a faith like a mustard seed, what do you know about mustard seeds? They're really small. That's the entire point. So small. The smallest of normal garden seeds in uh, ancient Near Eastern Palestine. Because I'm an expert on garden seeds, okay? Ancient, no. That's what you hear, right? It's the smallest seed. And it's the smallest seed compared to what? This tree, which supposedly has strong roots, what wins, the teeny little seed that hasn't grown up yet or the established, built-in tree? Well, the tree wins every time. Unless this mustard seed represents faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, your mind, heart, clinging to his promises in his word as if they're true in life, real for you because of what he's done the small and seemingly insignificant can ransack the seemingly impossible. Now, do you think Jesus is talking about making a bunch of Christian Yodas? You know when he takes the X-wing out of the out of the out of the pond? You know, Star Wars. Anyone? Come on, help me. I have two in the back. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Right, and he's oh faith. Look. Luke couldn't do it, but Leota's got more faith. Or We could have Christian parties and go down to the beach, and hey, it would glorify God. Everybody would be like, who are these people? Because we'd use our faith, and we'd just toss palm trees in the ocean, right? Just That's ridiculous. Why do you use an illustration like this? 
Why did he use it? What is the supernatural thing he's saying you'll be able to do with dependent faith? What is it? It goes back up into the first section. You'll be able to love these people like I'm telling you to love. You'll be able to forgive these people like I'm telling you to forgive. You'll be able to influence these people like I want you to do that. You could do that because it feels like a gnarled up tree in your heart, doesn't it? The inability to love, to be loved, to, to live like this. I, I cannot live the, the Christian life as you're telling me, Lord. It feels like this rooted up tree. If you have this much faith and say, Lord, help me, increase my faith. Jesus, enable me. That tree thrown out. The impossible will happen. The impossible will happen. Where you live more and more the supernatural Christian life. Awesome. What should our posture be towards one another? Humble care. What should our posture be towards the Lord? Humble dependence upon him. A humble dependence. Finally, what should our understanding of ourselves look like? We'll look at 7 to 9. Jesus tells this uh, illustration now. Hey, if you had a servant plowing, keeping sheep, say to him when he came in from the field, Oh, come and, and uh, recline at table. Won't you say, hey, make me lunch? And then after I eat, you could eat. What's his point? You know, from a, from a modern point of view, you could say, hey, this sounds awful. You got the slaves slaving away all day. He comes in for dinner. He still can't eat. Uh, yikes. Is that, what, is that what the Christian life is all about? Well, scholars, historical scholars would say, you're, you're not quite hearing this like Jesus' original audience would hear it. The setting is like a somewhat wealthy landover. He's not hugely wealthy in this little story because he's got one servant who pretty much does anything. So I'm doing movies today. I did Star Wars. Now I'll do Batman. Uh, Bruce Wayne. What's his, uh, what's his guy's name? Alfred. What's Alfred do? Everything, right? Everything. And, and so is, is Alfred, uh, is this bitter, you know, slave to Bruce Wayne, or is he a friend and a, almost a participant? It would, it would feel more like that. You've got this landowner and this bond servant who lives there, and, and scholars say this is actually a pretty sweet job if you can get it sometimes because instead of living like I don't know where my work's going to come from I don't know where I can belong I don't have any stability if you are a bond servant to a, a new east a near eastern nobleman like he provides for everything you live there you know where your meals are coming from you have a relationship with the person you you're working for and so, so there's this participation in how the farm is doing and how so there's there's a, this is a valuable job Moreover, the, the meal we're talking about here is not 10 p.m. after you've been slaving away all day. It's more like the mid-afternoon meal. And so the question might sound like this. Say you, uh, any of you have somebody working for you at work. Say they came in uh, after they worked from 9 to 12. And they came into your office and they were like, did you see what I did from 9 to 12? I worked according to our agreement and now you owe me. How would you feel as a boss? Uh, no, <laughs> you just did your job, you're getting paid, go back to work. That's how Jesus' audience would have heard it. Would, would a servant come in after working for the morning and say to the master who provides for him, you owe me because I did my morning chores. And of course, everybody in the audience would immediately think, what? No. Why is Jesus using this illustration? Here's why. 
because our pride is so insidious. Okay, so in, in number one, we hear God's call to love a certain way. In number two, we, we, hear, we hear, hey, have humble faith before the Lord. And if you do that, you'll see results in your life. And how many of you, have you done this? You, you saw God's call and you prayed and you asked for help and you did it and you served humbly and you loved humbly and then you went, dang, I'm good at serving humbly. I'm so glad I don't live in pride like all those other people who don't serve humbly like I do. You know what? I think if you've ever served the Lord and his church, you woke up one morning with pride because you felt bitter that people didn't thank you enough and you thought you deserved that. Or you looked down on the people who don't devote the time like you do and you went, ugh. I don't know. See, Jesus knows our hearts. You can hear his call, pray for help, serve him, and then feel prideful about it. I know this really well because I've done it. So what is Jesus telling us to do? It's our posture towards him. Look at verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, what should you say? We are unworthy servants. We're unworthy servants. What are you being reminded of here? You're saved by grace. It's the culture of your baptism. You're saved by grace. It's amazing. We could say, Jesus, increase our faith. So where did our faith come from? Jesus, Lord, help me to obey you. I need your help. I can't do it. And we pray, and then we obey a little more than we ever did before. And we think, oh, wow, look what I did. And we forgot, who did we even go to to get help to enable us to obey? Remember, Jesus says, you're saved by grace. You didn't, did you deserve to be brought into the Father's house and serve him as his daughter, as his son? Did you deserve to have him increase your faith so that you'd love his ways and serve his people? Did you deserve that? Did you deserve to have a context where you hear the word and you have opportunities to to love? How can we take pride in any of it? We do, right? But how can we? we? You remember the sweetness of grace. It humbles you. It humbles you. Um. When you're saved by grace, you have this joy of, I don't have to save myself. I don't have to do it perfect. I'm loved despite all my failings and my flaws. But that also means there's no deal making. God, if I obey you this much, then you owe me that. And God says, I don't think so. Because I saved you by grace. I'm giving you all this love you don't deserve. That means you owe me everything. Do you see how this text ties together? How should we respond to others? Humble care. How should we respond to the Lord? Humble dependence. How should we even view ourselves? A humble posture. People saved by grace. And that is the culture of our baptism, isn't it? We remember that we were brought by grace. We were changed by grace. We're united to Jesus Christ in God's grace, that we, the old life is dead, the new life has come, and it's all his grace. We don't deserve 
an ounce of it, but it's ours in Christ. And that's what makes us want to treat one another with humble care, to, to go to God with humble faith, and to have a humble view of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us by grace. Thank you that it's Jesus' life and death and resurrection that makes us right with you. Thank you um, for the supernatural power we can have in Christ to love one another in this unique way, to come before you for every need dependently, uh, and to remember the truth of who we are before you. Lord, we pray that this echo of what you've done for us, the real baptism in our hearts and this act of baptism that we're going to celebrate, we pray that that would echo out in how we treat one another, how we welcome one another, how we forgive one another, uh, how we come to you. So do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And we pray for Grant now, Lord, as he comes up to share about the grace of what you've done in his life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.